Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Well, we don't have any announcements, but last week I went to Tucson, and I didn't say too much about that, but... Um that was a good trip, and uh, John Hintz is a pastor out there, and I've known him for many, many, uh, many years, as some of you know, and he's been the pastor there since 1977, and he wanted me to come out and teach some things related to creation, and as I went over here a couple of months ago after the uh, conclusion of the uh, pastor's conference on the age of the earth, different things related to that, so we did that, and we had a, I had a uh, tremendous time. We always, he always has a good time because he's just funny and crazy and you always have to make sure that whatever happens is he's going to stay legal and not get anybody in trouble. I say that in jest, but those of you who know him know what I mean. So we had a great time and it was a, it was a really good conference and it wasn't too hot yet. So that made it nice. The weather was perfect and zero humidity, which is something that you never experience here in Houston. And uh, the high was about low 80s and low, we're in the upper 50s. So it was just perfect weather to be out in the high desert and everything. So that was, that went really, uh, really well. All right, before we get started this evening, let's uh, make sure that uh, we're ready to study the Word. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed thankful for our relationship with you based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that in your grace you have provided a perfect salvation for us that has taken care of the sin problem uh, completely, and the certificate of debt against us was nailed to the cross so that the issue for all human beings, but especially those of us who have believed is clearly no longer sin, the issue, rather, is obedience, facing forward, uh, moving forward in our spiritual life and spiritual growth. And so, Father, we're thankful that in your grace you have provided a solution that uh, does not involve any action on our part, but we are to learn to trust you and recognize all that you have provided for us and all that you've given us that we can indeed uh, move forward. So, Father, tonight we pray that we'd be encouraged, strengthened in our spiritual life as we study these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Last time we came to the last two verses in Hebrews 11, the conclusion to this uh, wonderful chapter. But it really is only the conclusion to sort of the argument that he has set forth, a summary of it, let's say, because the real conclusion comes in the punch of the first three verses of the of the next section. And unfortunately, whoever put the chapter divisions into the, uh, into the book of Hebrews put a chapter division here, and it really should not come for, uh, for some time because the last verse just flows right into the first verse. It is a strong conclusion based on everything that is stated in chapter 11. So as we come to this sort of summary in verse 39, let me just read that for you, and then we'll begin to 
uh, analyze it just a little bit. Verse 39, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Now, that's the New King James translation that we have up there. And it's not really the best, especially in terms of, of a um, of modern language, modern vocabulary. Um, and there's a couple of things in there that uh, could be handled a little bit better. So let's just start off at the very beginning. We have a phrase, and all these, and all of these, which summarizes what we've been studying since verse uh, since verse one. If you take a look at the beginning of the of the uh, chapter, we have a statement which introduces the basic topic of chapter 11, and that is faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, and then he says, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. Now, we'll come back to to this in just a minute, but the thing that you need to keep in mind as we start to orient to verses 39 and 40 is that the elders that are referred to in verse 2 are all of these heroes of the faith that are mentioned in the rest of chapter 11, starting with Abel, then Enoch, then Noah, then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, Moses, and Joshua. Uh, then we get down into the judges, Gideon and Barak, Samson, Samson and Jephthah, and David and, and Samuel. All of those he includes as the elders, so he's talking specifically about the Old Testament men who were, uh, aside from the initial ones who preceded the flood, but from Abraham on, who are the um, the fathers of, spiritual fathers of Israel. These are the great leaders of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, a couple of things I want to remind you of, because we have to hold this in mind as we look at these next five verses. This is very important to remember this. First of all, don't be misled, as it's commonly taught, to think of these as great mature believers. I think I've done a fairly good job over the last um, several weeks of pointing out that although some of them were mature believers, such as Abraham and Moses and Joshua, Samuel and David, There were also others that were listed here that were not quite as mature, some that were, in fact, uh, just uh, barely operating on any any clear doctrine or teaching from Scripture, uh, such as some of the judges that we have covered here, Samson, Jephthah, um, Barak, and Gideon especially, were not great examples of mature believers. They were, though, great examples of someone who had been uh, commissioned by God to a particular task, and at some particular moment they really trusted God in terms of the promise he had made, and it's at that instant that, uh, and, and for that, that they are mentioned in this chapter. But especially when we look at Samuel and to a large degree, uh, uh, Gideon as well, we see, especially when we look at, at how they are presented in the book of Judges, these are not sinless individuals. And that is one of the great evidences of the uniqueness of the Bible uh, compared to other religious books. And many other religious books, when you, they talk about the founders of their 
uh, religions. These men are painted with rose co- written with rose-colored co- glasses. Their faults and their flaws are not evident. And yet when you go through the Scripture, we studied Noah, how he was great in trusting God at the time of the flood, but then the next picture we see of him after the flood, he is drunk and passed out in his tent. And then we come to Abraham, and we see how he just fails to trust God, and he takes uh, Sarah's advice, and he uh, has relations with the handmaiden Sarah so that he can fulfill God's promise on his own. And that just began the whole problem between the Arabs and the Jews. You come to others such as uh, Moses, and he had his failures. You come to Joshua, and not too many failures are mentioned there. But then you come to men like Gideon, and as soon as uh, Gideon uh, is commissioned by God, he begins to try to get out of it by putting out the fleece. And God just keeps uh, answering his impossible requests. And so uh, that confirms the initial commission to uh, deliver the Israelites from the Midianites. And then uh, Gideon trusts God, but God has to constantly coddle him by giving him these reaffirmations of the commission so that Gideon will finally uh, muster up enough confidence and that's a key word for understanding faith, enough confidence in God's promise to actually engage the Midianites in battle and win. But then the next picture we see of Gideon is that he puts on this great show of humility. The people come to him and they want to make him king. And Gideon, with this great show of humility, says, no, I don't want to be king. Uh, I'm not going to be king. That's not what God called me to be. And everybody thinks, oh, isn't he wonderful? And then we find out that he has a son, and he names his son Abimelech. And Abimelech in the Hebrew means, my father is king. (laughs) And then he sets up an ephod, which was a priestly garment, and he begins to worship that and pray to that and leads all of the Israelites, all the nation Israel, into idolatry, uh, worshiping and praying at at this ephod. And then Jephthah comes along, and Jephthah, uh, who's basically grown up outside of the community of Israel, and Jephthah is a son of a of a uh, prostitute or of a uh, uh, but not of a marriage, and he grows up and he gets in with the uh, brigands and the uh, uh, bandits and the terrorists of that day, and the Ammonites are uh, oppressing the the Transjordan area, and so God. <clears throat> brings in Gide- uh, excuse me, Jephthah to deliver them. But we never see anything real positive about Jephthah's spiritual life. He's not even as, as, as uh, focused on God at any point as, as uh, Gideon was. And when he, he understands that God wants him to defeat the Ammonites, but then he decides he's going to operate just like every other pagan and he's going to make a bargain with God. And, and we think, well, when he makes the bargain with God, he tells God that if God would give him a victory, he'd sacrifice the first thing that came out of the door of his house to greet him when he came home. And, and we think, well, that can't really be human sacrifice. But it was, and, and that's how it has to be understood if you're consistent with the text at all. Uh, his daughter comes out to greet him. We think in our culture that, a do- that you know maybe a pet would come out. But they didn't have pets in their culture like we do. So he probably understood that it would be a human being that came out, and that was part of the paganism of that day. And just like we have lots of pew-sitting Christians today who 
don't act any differently from their uh, pagan counterparts at work on Monday, and they uh, think the same way, they act the same way, and they're constantly trying to make a bargain with God one way or the other, and that's just as pagan as what, what, what Jephthah did. It's just that it doesn't go quite to the extreme of a human sacrifice. But human sacrifice was clearly operational among the Moabites and among the Ammonites and among uh, some of the Canaanite groups at Jephthah's time. So he's just imitating the culture, reflecting the culture of his time. And then Sam, Samson, and Samson doesn't do anything right until he comes to the end of his life. He may have done other right things that we're not told about in the book of Judges, but as far as what the book of Judges says, all he was was a womanizer who every chance he got broke the vow, uh, broke the Nazarite vow, and he is uh, touching dead carcasses, and he's uh, wants to marry a Canaanite, which was outside of Israel in violation of Deuteronomy. And so what we see is all of these different men have major flaws, some more than others, but they're all sinners because that's what the Bible teaches is that we are all sinners. Now keep that thought in mind. That is crucial if we're going to properly understand and interpret the first two verses of chapter 12. So all these relates to all of these that have been mentioned from uh, the beginning of Hebrews 11 down through through the end. And, he's, and then the text goes on to say all of these, and the reason I've highlighted the last phrase is because if you look at the structure of the Greek, the main clause is the subject is all of these, and the uh, main verb is to not receive to not receive and what he is saying is all of these are all of these did not receive or we would say in smoother english none of these received the promise and that's the point that he's making now remember the writer of hebrews is talking to a group of primarily ex-jewish priests they had been oper- they had uh, been operating in temple service. That's why he spends so much time alluding to Leviticus and other passages in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the sacrifices and offerings, and all of that. Um, so it's very clear that he is speaking to an audience that is uh, deeply, intimately familiar with all of the ritual and regulations in the uh, in the Mosaic Law, and these were these were Jewish. Levites that had trusted in Christ as Savior. Now, we know that there were thousands upon thousands of Jews who believed Jesus was the Messiah. You go through Acts chapter 2 when Peter's, uh, uh, Peter's uh, message on the day of Pentecost, which actually was observed uh, Tuesday night. I mentioned that, that it, at uh, dusk on Tuesday night through dusk Wednesday night was the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot. And... I didn't mention it the other night, but the way uh, modern Jews observe Shavuot is to is to read the Torah because they they interpret the feast a little differently than than in the original passage in Leviticus 15, and they they observe it by reading the Torah and eating dairy. I just thought that was great Bible class and ice cream. That's we need to remember that next year. But the day of Pentecost, Peter preached there on the steps of the of the temple, and over five thousand believed. And then the next day, he's 
preaches again in Acts chapter 3, and over 4,000 men, that's not counting the families and wives and children, over 4,000 men were saved. So you probably have somewhere in the first six to eight months of uh, after Christ rose from the dead and ascended, you probably have somewhere between 15 to 30,000 Jews uh, trust Jesus as the Messiah. And until you get into Acts chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen, there's the the church is primarily Jewish. It's it's almost a hundred percent Jewish. It's not until Paul is saved in Acts chapter eight, and then you begin to have uh, Peter go to the Gentiles to Cornelius in Acts chapter ten that the church begins to break out of being a primarily Jewish group of of, of believers. And so by the time that Hebrews is written, it's only thirty years later. So you still have a uh, quite a large number of, of Jews who are who believe that Jesus was the Messiah in in Israel, and they have believed Jesus is the Messiah, but they're coming under persecution, rejection, opposition from other Jews. Now this is intensifying more and more. Uh, it's during the period of the uh, early 60s, and the Jewish rebellion against Rome broke out about 67. And it was at that time that the that the Jewish culture really fragmented into a number of different groups, and the the arrogance and hostility from one group to another uh, became almost tangible. And this is one of the reasons that led to their inability to to resist and win against the Romans was because they were so fragmented. You had the zealots, you had uh, the priests, you had those who wanted to go along with uh, with all the Romans. Uh, uh, earlier that group had been called the Herodians. Uh, so you had all of these different groups that were vying for power, and they couldn't unite against a common enemy. So in the midst of that, you, you would clearly see a rise of, of Jewish uh, nationalism, pride in their mosaic roots from the Pharisees, especially uh, against any who had uh, become a, a Christian, anyone who had become uh, a believer in Jesus as the Messiah. And so uh, there's this persecution and rejection, opposition that they're experiencing. And what do they want to do? They want to fold up their tents and go back into Judaism. And so the writer of Hebrews is challenging them on that and encouraging them not to give up, not to wimp out in the midst of opposition, not to uh, give in to self-pity because they have lost friends or they've lost family, they've become outcasts or whatever, but to keep focused on the future reward the heavenly destiny and so he's marshaled all of this evidence going through Hebrews 11 because these Old Testament heroes were focused on a promise that they never saw fulfilled that doesn't mean that God broke his promise it just has and it hasn't been fulfilled to this day but that that promise will be fulfilled in the future and so the point that he's making in his summary in verse 39 is that all of these in the past or as we, as I would rather uh, translate this, none of these received the promise, not one of them. But that didn't shake their faith. They didn't give up. They kept focused. They kept going, uh, going forward. And so the writer of Hebrews then structures this in the ne- in that intervening clause, uh, which we should translate. Remember, the main idea is none of these uh, received the promise. 
And, and then he has this statement there, uses a uh, participle in the Greek, just, just one word. It's an adverbial uh, participle that should be translated as, as a concessive. Uh, we'll pull that together when, when I give an expanded translation at the end, but you would translate something like this. None of these received the promise, though, see there's your concessive idea, though or although, they obtained a good testimony. Now what does that mean that they obtained a good testimony? Now this word that is translated here is the, the root verb is uh, martyreo which is where we get our, the, the noun form is martus, which we get, which is where we get our English word martyr. A martyr was someone who gave a witness or a testimony to their belief and then it cost them their life. So, but the, the focus of the word martyr really is on their evidence, their testimony, rather than the giving of, of their life. That's just a secondary idea that came in and then is the dominant idea when the word came over into English. Now, in uh, when you trace the meaning of this word in history, it has the root idea of giving a witness or produ- providing a witness in a legal context. Somebody is giving evidence of something they have seen, uh, they are confirming something that is true, or they're providing evidence or proof that something is true. So it has something to do with confirmation of something as true. That's that's the main idea here. Now, if you go back to Plato, Plato used the word in referring to the victor's crown in the in the Olympic Games. Now, think about that as part of this passage, because if you pay attention to where we're going in 12.2, it's talking about running the race with endurance. Okay, and so and so here you have verse 39. It's not that separate from 12.1 that they had they obtained a good good testimony, or they had um, re, and and Plato uses it to refer to the victor's crown as evidence of their success, evidence of their dedication, evidence of their discipline, evidence of all of their hard work that culminated in winning the race. Now, that's a key idea when we get into the, the next section. So it ought to tell us something about, about the whole idea of awards and rewards that we've talked about uh, previously. So they, uh, the key idea is a, a witness or providing evidence or proof of something. Uh, the word is used in the Old Testament over 130 times. And sometimes, it ref- in many cases, it refers to the uh, the meeting of God, of God between God and the nation Israel as the as the people who are in covenant relationship with God. And so they would meet at the tent of meeting, which is also called the Ark of the Testimony or the or the tent of the testimony. And so this too is a place where they where the nation would give witness or evidence uh, of the uh, grace of God and the goodness of God. Also, we find that uh, there's also use of this word in the Septuagint, martyreo, uh, in, in the Septuagint that indicates the commemorative function of a monument. So it has something to do with a memorial uh, to someone's, to their life as a, as a uh, testimony. So all of that forms the background to, to uh, this particular word. 
And it's used a number of times in Hebrews emphasizing the fact that a person's life is a witness or evidence to the grace of God within the broader scope of the uh, angelic conflict. Now, when we look at this phrase, we see that we'll translate this, none of these received the promise, although they obtained a confirmation, really, of their faith. That's the idea there, although it's written through faith. And through faith, there's a different phrase than what we've seen at the beginning of all of these verses. It's not an N plus the dative anymore, but it has the same meaning. It's D plus the genitive, indicating means, so that the means by which they demonstrated their faith was uh, uh, demonstrated their conviction of the promise was through faith and their dependence upon God in crucial situations. Now, this takes us back again to those first two verses. And we read in those first two verses that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, when I taught on this passage, I pointed out that this is a parallelism, but it's not a definition. This is not a strict definition of faith, but it is a description of what faith does. See, faith is to trust or believe something. And that something, when we express it verbally, is always described as a proposition. We believe something that can be expressed as a, as a, in a declarative sentence or as a proposition that can either be validated or invalidated. That's a technical meaning of a proposition. It's not a question. It's not imperative. It is a statement of fact, and it's either going to be true or not. We either believe it or we don't believe it. Now, our faith in that first uh, statement there, the faith there as the substance of things hoped for, the word that's used there in the Greek, hypostasis, is a word that inv- indicates a confidence or conviction. So the faith, the fact that I believe something and, and act upon it, that that, is a, that in and of itself is a conviction in the present time of something that is hoped for in the future. So the way you can understand a, my, our future focus, that we understand where we're headed, what the goal is, is by looking at the f- present tense faith. So if you take this and put it in the context of an athlete. You're a runner. Uh, you're a football player. You're a hockey player. You're a basketball player. Whatever it may be, you have to train, and you have to train, you have to discipline yourself, you have to work out, you have to uh, really get a grip on where you're headed, what the ultimate goal is, because it's not something you're going to see and quantify and feel and experience today. You may not see it for several years. If you think about an Olympic athlete, of course, today, there are many, many other competitions that an Olympic athlete uh, is involved in and is engaged in prior to the Olympics. And so they're, they're constantly going to uh, world competition. But they train and they train and they train, but they always have to keep their focus on the end result uh, of winning, on the end result of having victory in that, that competition. And that's what keeps them going when they have to get up in the morning and they have a cold and, or it's, they have to get up in the morning and it's cold outside. 
And there's all kinds of reasons to stay in a warm bed rather than get up and go run or to go work out or whatever it may be to stay in shape and keep the focus on the goal. So the fact that they are focusing right now real time, day to day, and and focusing, planning, self-discipline, being able to put aside the things that are distractions and focus on only those things that will lead them to victory – is evidence, or as as the writer is saying here, it is a con- it shows their conviction of things hoped for. So an athlete hopes for that gold medal at the Olympics, and his present time dedication and discipline stands as physical evidence of his future hope. And the parallelism. The writer says this is evidence of things not seen, and he uses a different word in the uh, in the Greek. He uses the word elenkos, which has the it's also a courtroom term that indicates presenting evidence that something is true. So it's a very close idea to being a witness because evidence that is presented in a courtroom is a witness or a testimony uh, against a person or in favor of a person, depending on how it is used. So faith is the is the conviction of things hoped for. That present tense faith is something that you can see, understand in a person's life that is that and affects the decisions they make today in light of eternity, in light of the future. And it is also the evidence uh, or the proof of things that are not seen. Now the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden, when he addressed the serpent, was he addressed the serpent after he the serpent uh, tempted Eve. She ate the fruit. Adam then ate the fruit. And God addressed the serpent. He said, the, your seed will uh, bite the heel of her seed, but her seed will stomp on your head. And stomping on the head indicating a fatal wound. Now, that's the first indication that God is going to solve the problem created by Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 through the seed of the woman. And we've traced that through the Bible many times, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all the way down to um, the virgin will conceive and and, uh, give birth to a son, Isaiah uh, 714, all the way up to to the birth of Jesus. So... They never saw that promise, though. It was always future, but they never, they never gave up. The promise was also contained in specifics of the land promise later on from Abraham on in relationship to the, to Israel and the descendants of Abraham. So that they never saw the fulfillment of that promise, but the faith that they had was the evidence of that future, future promise. Now, in verse 2, the writer stated that by it, that is, the faith, the elders did what? They obtained or they received a good testimony. Same word that we have here in Hebrews 11, uh, 38. It's focusing on the fact that the elders then obtained a good confirmation. Their faith was a confirmation and present evidence of the reality of what they uh, what they believed. So we learned a couple of things about faith. First of all, that faith is a present certainty based on the conviction of a future expectation. 
We know this is going to happen in the future. We may not know how or exactly when, but we are convinced it is true because of the one who makes the promise, because God is a voracious God. He is a trustworthy God. He is a true God. He is a faithful God. He's not going to lie. And when he says something's going to happen a certain way, it's going to happen that way. And we see many times historically where the things that the prophets said would happen happened exactly that way. In fact, God was so concerned about uh, documenting and protecting his integrity that the test for a prophet was 100% accuracy. And if a prophet missed in even the slightest way on his prophecy, the penalty was death. And it wasn't because God was a mean and harsh God, but God can't have people running around representing him and saying that God said this when God didn't say that. And so God had to protect his brand, so to speak, in modern uh, business parlance. He had to make sure that nobody was going to tarnish his reputation by uh, making errors in predicting the future. So faith is a present evidence of a future expectation. It's a confident assurance of a future reality. The second thing we see in summary is that faith puts its confidence always in the revelation or the witness or the authority of God. These words are used interchangeably so that the revelation of God in the Scripture is also a witness or testimony to his character, to who he is, and to his His authority. So in summary, we can say that, that basically faith gives us a certainty and a, a surety and a certainty of the future fulfillment of God's promise. It is sure and it is certain. And that comes because we know it's not faith in a vacuum. It's not faith in faith. It is looking at the word of God and seeing that there's evidence after evidence after evidence that the, that the Bible predicts things that come to pass exactly as they said they would historically, that even though the Bible is written by 66 different men, or there are 66 different books, and it's written by over 40 different men from many different walks of life, from uh, Egypt to Persia to Greece, Turkey, Israel, all of these different individuals who wrote these books of the Bible agreed on every different subject that they that they touched on, and they touched on some of the most controversial subjects uh, ever known to man. They talk about everything from law to politics, economics, uh, all of these other things are covered somewhere in the Scripture, and yet they don't disagree. There is perfect and complete harmony because behind those 40-plus men who wrote the Scripture is God who is guaranteeing that what they wrote was absolutely without error and was to be preserved uh, for all of the ages. So we can have confidence in that. Now let's look at an expanded translation of verse uh, 39. And none of these who trusted God received the promise yet. See, there's a, I didn't point this out, but one of the problems in the way that it is uh, stated in, in most translations that they did not receive the promise almost has a sense of a perfect tense verb that they won't receive the promise. Okay? 
They didn't yet receive the promise. It's an aorist tense. It's not a perfect tense. It's just stating that historically they never saw the fulfillment of the promise, but it's not to be taken as having ongoing future consequences, which is what you would have in a perfect tense verb. So it should be translated to catch that nuance. It should be translated, none of these who trusted God received the promise yet, even though what they believed was confirmed by their actions. When they trusted God, God gave them victory. So it's not just that that because they believed it and they acted a certain way. It is that when they believed God and trusted him, God gave them victory over their enemies in, in a number of those different examples, or God fulfilled a promise that was true for that time, but it's not... Uh, but that was only a sign of the future fulfillment uh, of the promise to come. Then we come to verse 40. And verse 40 in your uh, English text starts off as if it's a second independent clause. Tonight, grammar is important because grammar is what helps us to understand the flow of a writer's thought and when, when they were writing on their scrolls in the ancient world, they didn't have boldface type and italics, and they couldn't change the fonts and the font sizes and uh, underline things and all those things that we do today to try to draw, draw people's attention to something. They didn't even have highlighters. So they used grammar to do it. And what's interesting in this, without getting too, too technical, is that this is what is, when I first looked at this in the Greek, it starts off with a genitive phrase that you would think should be translated of God. Now, a genitive doesn't express the, the subject of a clause. It, it's a nominative case that expresses the subject of a clause. So as soon as, soon as I saw it, I went, that's really odd. It immediately captured my attention. And that's because you have this funny little thing that happens in, uh, in Greek it's called a genitive absolute, where you have a genitive clause, a genitive phrase of God associated with a participle that's in the genitive that is used by the writer in order to, to emphasize or highlight that particular clause. And it's not related to anything else in the sentence. And so it stands apart as a nominative clause, and that's how it should be translated. And so that's why your English Bible translates it this way, God having provided uh, something uh, better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And this emphasizes the fact that God is doing something here that has, uh, is providing for the future. And so God has, uh, when it says God having provided something better, should be trans- is a, the having provided something better is a, another participle. And you have to understand a little bit about grammar. A participle is a, is a, is a uh, verbal adjective. That means sometimes it acts like a verb and sometimes it acts like an adjective, adjective and sometimes a noun. And when it acts like a verb, it's, it modifies a verb. It's adverbial. Now, what happens in a, in a good translation is that the translator is not going to define the participle for us. Now you go, why didn't he do that? Well, because as Bob Thomas pointed out, and I think he's right, um, Bob Thomas he spoke last year at the, at the pastor's conference, been a professor of uh, hermeneutics, Bible study, translation at, at uh, uh, 
master's seminary out in California for uh, many, many years. He's in his early 80s now. And he made the point, when I first read it, I thought, well, that's unusual, but I think he's right. A translation is, tr- is put this way so that many different people are going to use this translation. So there's a certain level of ambiguity when you get into uh, looking at a, at a participle like this. And he, and he said a basic principle for translation of versions like this is to leave the ambiguity there at the same level it is in the Greek. But see, a Greek speaker would immediately understand the nuance of the ambiguity, just like you do when certain things are ambiguous in English. But it's the role of the pastor to explain the significance of the uh, of the participle. The tr- when the translator does it, he's moved from translating to interpretation. And if you've got the NIV, he's actually moved into doing theology for you, and he gets completely away from what the original says. And that's one reason I don't like the uh, New International Version. So here you have a participle that's translated having provided something better, and it should be understood as a causal participle because God provided something better for us. So the main thought, remember, goes back to verse 30, 39. All these did not receive the promise because God provided something better for us. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians in the church age are superior to Jews in the Old Testament in an existential way. It does because they have a greater uh, testimony, they have greater revelation in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who fulfills all those promises uh, and prophecies from the Old Testament related to, uh, to the Messiah. And he completed what was incomplete in the Old Testament sacrifices and in the Old Testament ritual. So that this is what he means when he says God provided something better for us, but notice that the purpose clause is that they, that is the Old Testament believers, should not be made perfect apart from us. In other words, that the Old Testament believers aren't going to reach their fulfillment, their ultimate destiny and realization of the promise apart from Christians. Why? Because it is through Christ and his work on the cross that there is the completion of what was partial in the Old Testament. And so this is what pulls together the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, there's something else that's going on here that's setting the stage for where we're going to go in the first two verses of chapter 12, is that chapter 12 then shifts into a, another metaphor, uh, the metaphor of a race. Now, that was already a part of the nuance in terms of the testimony, the martyreo, and uh, so, some of the imagery that we've seen already, but now... But it hasn't been real clear. You wouldn't have necessarily guessed it if it stopped here. But in verse 1 of chapter 12, it's going to pull it out. Now, this verse reads as follows. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded, and he includes himself with the uh, with his listeners, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the wraith that is set before us. 
And so this then pictures a race. And this is uh, very uh, very common in the ancient world. You had the Olympics that, that were held in in Greece. There were various different places where the games were held. They were, games were held at Delphi. They were held at Corinth. They were uh, held at, at Sparta. A number of other different places. And the picture is of this 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 race that you have an athlete who's going to go out before the stands, and the stands are filled, but the stands aren't filled with spectators. The stands are filled with athletes that have already run their race. It would be like in the modern Olympics going and performing at the modern Olympics and everybody in the stands uh, and what you, the people in the stands that are observing you run this race are, are all of the athletes from the ancient games in Greece all the way up to the present. So you're not running in front of amateurs or in front of spectators. You're running in front of people who are previous athletes who've already run their competition. And so that's the picture. That's the great cloud of witnesses that's observing us in running, running the race. And we're to run that race with endurance. Now, when you look at this, there ought to be a a question in your mind. You may not catch it from the English. Some of you might. And that is, how can we lay aside every weight before we can run the race? That doesn't seem very realistic, and it's not. You have to understand, and you plug this into the, the, the web of teaching that we have in the New Testament. But if you just took this verse as it stands, you could easily move into a lot of legalistic guilt manipulation, which is exactly what has happened in a lot of churches and a lot of groups that don't understand the first thing about God's grace. God's grace isn't permissiveness. God's grace recognizes that none of us can do a cotton-picking thing to solve the sin problem that God had to do that. And that's evident in the way this is structured and in the terminology that's used here. And so the first thing you ought to think about as you look at this is, well, there's no way that I can lay aside every sin. I can't become sinless and perfect before I can run the race because running the race is comparable to how we live our lives. So if you take it that way, then you've got a real problem because you think that the text says you've got to clean up everything in your life and become morally and ethically and spiritually perfect before you can run the race. That is not what the writer is saying. That's why I emphasized in the introduction all of the failures and sins and flaws of all of these heroes mentioned in the first part of chapter 11 from Enoch to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Samson, Jephthah, Samuel, David. They were they continued to be, and in many cases, royal sinners long after they became uh, became saved. And throughout their life, even at near the end, David has a major sin. Uh, covered at the end of Second Samuel when he numbers the people in a, uh, with a census and God says, okay, I'm going to come and, and, and punish you and I'm going to give you three options here as to uh, how you're going to accept this punishment. Which one do you want for your punishment? And so there is a, a major discipline on, on David and on the, the nation of Israel because of David's uh, sin of arrogance at that particular point. So we, we don't get rid of it. 
There's no way we can get it. That doesn't mean that you justify it, rationalize it, uh, minimize it, or any of those other things. But you have to understand that the grace of God isn't coming to you and saying, okay, first of all, you have to clean up your life, and then I'll deal with you. Because God says that he already cleaned it up because of what Christ did on the cross. So let's look at the main idea. I find this is always very helpful when you have these sentences that have numerous clauses, just focus on the main clause. So remember what we saw in verse 39. And all, and none of these received the promise. Although God provided, um, uh, none of these received the promise. God, because God provided something better for us. That's, that's the summary of the, of the, uh, of chapter 11. Then he's going to draw a conclusion. Now, this conclusion, this is well translated. It's therefore, if the writer could, could write therefore, wherefore, and now in conclusion, uh, you would capture what's said in the Greek. There's a, a, a three-word Greek uh, compound word here, toigarun, which is brought together, which is the strongest way you can say therefore in the Greek language. And so he's drawing a very, an extremely strong conclusion from all of the evidence he has presented in the previous chapter. Therefore, we also, so he brings in himself along with his, along with his audience, he includes they're all together. He's not setting himself apart. He's not saying, okay, I've arrived now. You've got to arrive also. He says, we also, and then you have a clause a causal clause, since we are surrounded by so great, just drop that. Let us lay aside every weight, drop that. Uh, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, drop that. And then you get to your main main thought. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That is the main thought. That is the uh, main command that is um, set forth here. So the first thing that we that we see as we start with Hebrews 12.1 is that the reason for the challenge that is presented here, uh, the reason for the challenge is stated. We're not the first to face such challenge, adversities, or obstacles. We're just the most recent. We're the current generation that's facing all of these challenges and obstacles. Uh, he, the writer is saying that in light of the evidence that he just gave from Abel down through David, uh, we don't, we're not supposed to whine. We're not supposed to give in to self-pity. We're not supposed to uh, uh, feel sorry for ourselves that things are so tough for us because, as he's going to point out later on, that in uh, living out our Christian life, we haven't faced martyr's death. We haven't been thrown into the Colosseum with lions. We haven't had to go through uh, overt physical persecution, beatings. We haven't been threatened with being sawn into or any of those things. You've all had it so easy and you whine. There's no reason for it. Okay? What he is saying is uh, that because we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, and this cloud of witnesses uh, picks up this whole metaphor of, of, of running a race, an athletic competition, in the in the midst of a uh, and, and before those who have run and run well and have have uh, therefore received the victor's crown, so that's the imagery. The second thing that we see here is the command that is given, and that command is in the last phrase, which really I think should be put up at the beginning uh, if we're going to to catch the thrust of it. By putting it at the end, it's lost in these other dependent clauses. 
we are to, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, this, this phrase, let us run, is expressed in the Greek in a subjunctive mood verb, which doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but that's how you express a first-person command. In English, all we have is second-person commands. I can either talk to an individual and I say, now I want you to run a race, and I'm talking to an individual. If I'm talking to a group, then I use a second-person plural uh, pronoun. I say, y'all run the race if I'm from south of the Mason-Dixon line. And y'all know what the plural of y'all is. All y'all. So all y'all run the race with endurance. Okay, that's that's the focus here. But but that's a second person plural. Now, if it's a third person command, the way you expressed is let them do it or let him do it. But in a first person command, it's expressed as let us do it. It sounds softer, but it's not in actuality. It is really a, as much of a command and as much of his imperative as any command barked out by a drill sergeant in boot camp. And as I read this today, I thought I came up with a perfect example of this kind of hortatory subjunctive. And I don't know where that came from. Okay, that's on my screen, not your screen. Okay. We're, let's, let's play this. This is from Winston Churchill's uh, well-known speech, uh, uh, blood, uh, blood Toil, Tears, and Sweat. It was his first speech as prime minister to the House of Commons. On May the 10th, 1940, he was appointed as the prime minister in England. And on May the 13th, he gave this speech, which is one that many of you have heard and read parts of. But I just want to play the last a minute and a half or so of it, and when he comes to the last line, you're going to hear the hortatory subjunctive. Okay? So listen, this, this is a great speech. House, as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. They have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say, it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with all our might, and with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny, never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. Let that be realized. No survival for the British Empire. No survival for all that the British Empire stood for. No survival for the urge and impulse of the ages that mankind will move forward towards its goal. But I take up my task with buoyancy and hope. I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. At this time, I feel entitled to claim the aid of all. And I say, come then, 
Let us go forward together with our united strength. Okay, now did you catch it? You think that was an option for anybody in Britain not to go forward with our united strength? That's the last statement he makes. Let us go forward together with our united strength. Nobody in Britain had an option there. And that is the same thing that the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I think it's a great parallel with the warfare metaphor or the warfare reality of, of Churchill's speech and the competition race metaphor here that we are to go forward with endurance. Now, when we get to the next point in this understanding this verse, we need to understand how we are to run the race. That's the next thing that the writer addresses. First of all, he addressed the uh, the cause for it, our motivation, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Then he gives us the command, which is to run the race with endurance. See, you think in the English that you're supposed to let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. You think that's a command because it's expressed the same way, but those are participles in the, in the, in the Greek. The only imperatival force verb that you have here is the let us run uh, with endurance the race that is set before us. But what you have here is a very interesting, a very interesting connection or grammatical construction here. It's called a participle of attendant circumstance. And what that means is that the, the participles describe the conditions that must be met before you can carry out the command. Let me say that again. In this kind of a construction, the participles of the attendant circumstance describe what has to be fulfilled or carried out, the conditions that have to be met before you can fulfill the command. And, and what that means, if you're reading this, is that before you can run the race, you've got to quit all sin. You've got to clean up your life. Nobody can do that. We can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps in that way. In fact, there's a couple of other passages in Scripture that uh, indicate that, that are very similar to this. But first of all, we, I want to focus on just briefly as we wrap up what the problem is. And that is that we're all flawed. We all are have committed sin, every one of us. And that's a t- clear testimony that you find not only in the New Testament, but also going back to the Old Testament. Psalm 14.3 reads, They have all turned aside. They have uh, together. They have all been become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. In an absolute sense, in comparison with God's perfect righteousness, no one does good. Ever. And you can't get there. No one's ever going to be good enough to meet God's perfect standard of absolute righteousness. You can do things that are relatively good, better than other people, but nobody ever does absolute perfection. Psalm 51.5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So he's not talking about the fact that his, his mother had an affair and it was, he was born as an illegitimate child. He's talking about the fact that, that from birth we sin. Then we have passages like Isaiah 59, 7, and 8. Their feet run to evil. And he's describing 
people as a whole. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting and destruction are in their paths, the way of peace they have not known. There is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. And then, of course, then we come to the great passage in Isaiah chapter 53, where Isaiah talks about himself, includes himself in the whole group that he is addressing and says, all we like sheep have gone astray. That doesn't leave anybody out. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everybody fails to meet God's standard. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, except for maybe you. No. Oh, that's right. Everyone to his own way. But what? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he's talking about the Messiah here, that this is what the role of the Messiah would be, is that he would bear the sins of the world. Now, see, in Psalm 51, when David recognized he was a sinner, he what's the solution? The solution is expressed through the same imagery we have throughout the Old Testament. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Why? Because I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me. In other words, he is, he is, he is acknowledging, admitting his sin, his confession. And in verse 50, verse 4, he says against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And yet David is in heaven today. He is with God because of God's grace in forgiving him uh, of sin. Now, when we look at Isaiah 53, 6, and we read, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, the solution is because God provided the solution. He laid on him, that is the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. Now, look at where that goes in the next three verses, Isaiah 53, 8, 9, and 10. He was taken from prison and from judgment, indicating that the Messiah was predicted to be one who would be taken from before a court of law. This is fulfilled with Jesus because he is taken from, uh, taken to Pilate, and it was the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate who condemned him to death. Uh, he, uh, Isaiah goes on to say, and who will declare uh, his generation? That is, who will declare who he is, his person? For he was cut off from the land of the living, referring to his death. The Messiah would die. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. This is the point that's made that Jesus went to the cross to die for the sins of the world. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And his grave was provided by the wealthy. It was the grave owned by uh, a very rich Pharisee by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. In verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you, when you, addressing God, uppercase you, when you make his soul an offering for sin. See, this was the role of the Messiah. Was to, he was the one who would bear our transgressions, bear our sins. He was the one who would, uh, whose soul would be made an offering for sin. And because of that, the sin penalty is paid for. Now, when you look at two passages in the New Testament, I'll come back and review this next time, but I want to get this in here right now before we go forward. In James 1.21, 
And in 1 Peter 2.1, we have the same grammatical construction that we have in, in Hebrews 12.1. James says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. That's horrible translation, but you get the idea. He's saying it's the same word, apatithemi, there that you have in Hebrews 12. Remove sin, basically, and receive the implanted word. Same construction, attendant circumstances. Before you can receive the word, you have to get rid of all the sin in your life. First Peter does the same thing. I didn't put the second verse here. That's the command. The first verse says, Lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. And desire, then the next verse says, Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The command is to desire the milk of the word. But before you can do that, you got to get rid of all of this sin. Now, you can't do that, and I can't do that. The only way that can be dealt with is by somebody who takes that sin upon himself and pays the penalty for sin so that we then uh, receive the benefit of their righteousness that's applied to us because it will never happen. Now, this isn't just, he's not talking just legally here about the doctrine of justification by faith. He is, he is talking about the practical ramifications of that in terms of confession of sin and dealing with sin in the life of the believer before you can move forward. And that's why we have passages like 1 John 1, 9, which is comparable to Psalm 51, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that then we can move forward. But we're still going to sin. Now, it's not a license for sin, but it gives us the liberty and the freedom to recover when we do sin so that we can keep going forward and uh, in our spiritual life. And, that, and that's the focus of this, going forward and enduring the race, because we're going to have a lot of things that come along that hinder us, that are uh, that's the baggage that's mentioned here, the every weight, the entangling sin, which for his audience here, was this the the desire to just give it up and forget their Christianity and go back, uh, go back into Judaism and get, give up in the light of the persecution, the opposition. So, how do you do that? Well, that's next the next verse, and we'll get there next Thursday night. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your Word this evening, to be reminded that you're in control, to be reminded of your grace, to be reminded that you have taken care of the sin problem uh, because you made. Uh, Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin, to be sin for us, and that he bore in his body on the cross our sins, that your righteousness may be found in us. Now, Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we've studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.